Dr. Seuss. We grew up with Dr. Seuss, right? Yep. How many books did he write? A lot. Some 45. This one, Horton Hatches, I guess is number four. Uh, he wrote Green Eggs and Ham to, to win a bet. I bet him you couldn't write that in 50 words. You can't, what can you write? What book can you write in 50 words or less? So he wrote that book with 50 words or less. Uh, do you ever call somebody a nerd? Jonathan, you ever call somebody a nerd? Yeah. Well, he coined the word. So when you say nerd, you can think of Dr. Seuss. But this is one of the books he wrote. And it's about an elephant, an African elephant by the name of Horton, who is convinced by Maisie she's a bird and she's rather irresponsible. And so she convinces him to sit on her egg. And he agrees to do it. She wants a short break. Well, she ends up actually relocating to Palm Beach. And so he's kind of stuck with this egg through all kinds of challenges, the elements. He's exposed to the elements. He's laughed at by his own friends, captured by hunters, endures this sea voyage, is placed in a traveling circus for people to see this elephant sitting on this nest. It takes, it goes over about a year, I guess, him sitting on this egg. It takes a while to hatch this egg. Yep, and, but despite all of these hardships, he refuses to leave the nest and insists on keeping his word. And this is the phrase, this is a good phrase for us from Dr. Seuss and Horton. What does he say? I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. Would you say that with me? I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and elephants faithful 100%. And so he's going all over with this egg, this traveling circus, ends up near Palm Beach, and Maisie the bird sees him, and she wants her egg back. (laughs) After all of this time, and just about then the egg hatches, and it's an elephant bird. (laughs) That's what hatches. You like to learn about Dr. Seuss, don't you? But Horton, keeping his word no matter what. Uh, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And my message title this morning comes from Dr. Seuss. That <laughs> may be a bad thing. Usually I take a, a, a word or two or phrase out of the biblical passage, but this is a very good title for our passage. Faithful 100%. And there is David hugging Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And our passage today is all about David keeping his word. David is faithful to his promises. 100%. And you're going to learn a Hebrew word today. I've introduced it to you in the past, but it's the... Hebrew word chesed. It's a guttural, so it's kind of rolling, chesed. So look to your neighbor, don't spit on them, but go ahead and say chesed. Yeah, yeah, I'm having a hard time with that. <laughs> chesed. All right, it's this idea of 
faithfulness, steadfast love. And, and that's the whole environment of Second Samuel chapter 9. That's the big idea, chesed. You'll learn all about it from our passage. But as usual, we first review, don't we? And it's so good to review because I would want you, after our study of the life of David, to, to maybe have some branches to hang all these thoughts on. And I said that, that if I were to write a plan, I'd probably have four acts. Act 1, David's rise to prominence. Remember, he's anointed to be king by Samuel. Kills a giant, Goliath, very popular. He's popular with everybody, even Saul at first, but then Saul fears this young upstart that he's going to usurp the throne, and so David has to flee for his life for some eight years. So his life on the run. That's how 1 Samuel ends. It ends with Saul and his son Jonathan killed on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. And so 2 Samuel ends, or starts with David as king over Judah at first. That's Act 3. That's where we find ourselves now. And the next Sunday, we'll probably start Act 4, which is a bit of a downer with the life of David, his remorse. 2 Samuel chapter 11, anybody know what that passage is about? David and his sin with Bathsheba. So we find ourselves in Acts 3. Acts 3, David's rule as Israel's greatest king. The first ten chapters of 2 Samuel. And the just of it is this, as he rules as Israel's greatest king. First of all, he rules over just the south of Israel, Judah. With the death of Ishbosheth, Saul's, Saul's son, he rules over all of Israel. He defeats the Jebusites and takes their city, Jerusalem, to be his capital. He becomes greater and greater. He is built a house by Hiram of Tyre. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The central piece of Israel's worship of the one true God. The Ark of the Covenant. He brings it to Jerusalem. And then last Sunday, 2 Samuel chapter 7, a continuation, we saw that David wants to build a house or a temple for the ark. Remember that? That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build a house, a temple for the ark of the covenant. And at first he expresses his desire to Nathan. Nathan says, hey, do what's in your heart. But then later Nathan receives a word from the Lord that David is not the one to build my house. Go tell David he's not the one to build my house. And then God says, instead, I will build a house for David. What was he talking about? I'll build a house for David. I will build a dynasty. I will build a kingdom for David. And so some ten times, and what I'm wanting us to do as we work with these different passages is to understand what is the writer driving at? What does he want us to see? And some ten times in chapter 7, we find this declaration by God, I will. This is what I am going to do for you, David. I will. I will. 
I will. I will. I will. You wanted to do something for me? Let me tell you what I will do for you. And I said that, that this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is, is a high watermark in all of biblical revelation. It's just a critical passage. A mountaintop. And the peak of the mountaintop is verse 16. Notice in your Bibles, 2 Samuel seven sixteen, where God declares to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And so God says, David, I'm going to establish your kingdom and your throne forever. And and the, the cartoon character, we, we remember what he said, Buzz Lightyear. What did Buzz say? Come on now, talk to me. What did Buzz say? To infinity and beyond. And that's what our passage is declaring. It's speaking of Jesus Christ, who's going to sit on David's throne to infinity and beyond. Wow. High watermark, peak of the mountain top. Yep. Looking ahead to that ultimate descendant of David, Jesus Christ, whose throne will be established forever. Amen? Isn't that your hope? Is that your hope for a great, glorious king who can rule over the created order forever? Amen? Oh. In Second Samuel chapter 8, we see the Lord fulfilling some of the promises that he's made to David. So 2 Samuel 7, these great promises, 2 Samuel chapter 8, he's starting to fulfill these promises, making a great name for David, giving him and Israel rest from their enemies. And the key phrase in chapter 8 is the Lord helped David wherever he went. The Lord helped David wherever he went. And that brings us to our chapter for today, chapter 9. So now you understand the context. And it's basically this, that David has been established. He's been helped by God as he's the great king of Israel. And now he finds himself grappling with this question, who can I help? (laughs) I've been established and, and I have all of this now. Who can I help? And the answer is Mephibosheth. That's who, Mephibosheth. Our passage is so relevant because it's going to challenge us to be people who are faithful. It's going to challenge us to be people who are faithful. People who make promises and keep promises. We want relationships like that, don't we? Yeah. And that's what our passage is all about. David's faithfulness to promises he had made to Jonathan. To care for his descendants. So faithfulness. And our passage is all about kindness. This, this Hebrew word hesed. That, that's really the central idea. Hesed. Kindness. To have experienced as we all have in such wonderful ways because of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've experienced that. And guess what? We're supposed to be people who demonstrate it. And we want to be, don't we? We want to be just like our God who's kind, and we want to be kind. Yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to read our verse, the whole chapter. It's not that long. It's 13 verses. And my message is going to be very simple. We're going to talk about the two character, key characters of this chapter, David and Mephibosheth. 
and we're going to develop a key characteristic of their lives. All right, so very simple. David met Hibosheth. Let's go ahead and read our chapter. Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Zeba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Zeba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness, the hesed of the God of God? And Zeba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. And so the king said to him, Where is he? And Zeba said to the king, Well, he's in the house of Mehar, the son of Amil, in Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mehar, the son of Amil, from Lobar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, here's your servant. David said to him, do not fear. Why would he be fearful? Thinking maybe he'll lose his life. He here was a descendant of Saul. David said, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated in himself. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all my lord, the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Oh, look at that. As one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. And so we're going to develop that chapter just looking at the two key characters, David and Mephibosheth. Key characteristic. So my message is very simple. You're going to walk out of here understanding, oh, this is what this passage is all about. I can tell my friends at work on Monday. And so first of all, David and the word associated with him is kindness, kindness, kindness. Notice verse 1, then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? The kindness I've been shown by God. Verse 7, David said to him, Mephibosheth, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness. For the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Kindness is the key word in our whole passage. It's the Hebrew word, and I've already given it to you, chesed. And it really carries two ideas, two ideas associated with this word, kindness and faithfulness. Hesed speaks of a steadfast love. 
So there's the idea of love and then it being steadfast or a covenant faithfulness. I've got these statements, I believe, in your notes. I don't have a slide for them by Tim Balkley. Notice in your notes, what is hesed? It's love as determined willing. It's stickability through thick and thin. And then he mentions traditional marriage vows to love and to cherish for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That that is Hesed. There's a beautiful little book written by Robertson McQuilkin from Columbia International up in Columbia. We've got some of our folks who went there. Jared went there. Jessica went there. There may be others. It's titled A Promise Kept. Actually, here's the cover of the book. And he writes this book about the promise he made to his wife in marriage to care for her for better, for worse, because Muriel, his wife, came down with Alzheimer's. And so he had a grapple with, he was the president of the school up in Columbia, the changes that were taking place in his wife and the the challenges. And so let me read a little bit out of this, if you'll allow me. Sacrifices. For years I struggled with the question of whether ministry or mural should be sacrificed. Should I put the kingdom of God first and for the sake of Christ and the kingdom arrange for institutionalization? Trusted longtime friends, wise and godly, urged me to do this. Mural would become accustomed to the new environment quickly. Would she? Would anyone love her at all, let alone love her as I do? Would she not miss that love? I had often seen the empty, listless faces of those who lined up in wheelchairs along the corridors of such places, waiting, waiting for the fleeting visit of some loved one. In such an environment, Muriel would be tamed only by drugs or bodily restraints. Of that, I was confident. People who did not know me well have said, well, you always said God first, family second, ministry third. I never said that. To put God first means that all the responsibilities he gives are first two. Yet sorting out responsibilities that seem to conflict is tricky business. Eventually, I approached the board of trustees with the need to begin the search for my successor. I told them that when Muriel needed me full-time, she would have me. When the time came, the decision was firm, and it didn't take any heavy-duty calculation. Soon after the decision was announced, I wrote a letter to our constituency. Here's the letter. Twenty-two years is a long time, but then again, it can be shorter than one anticipates. And how do you say goodbye to friends you do not wish to leave? The decision to come to Columbia was the most difficult I have had to make. The decision to leave 22 years later, though painful, was one of the easiest. It was almost as if God engineered the circumstances so that I had no alternatives. Let me explain. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about 12 years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibility at Columbia... But recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I am away from her. 
It is not just discontent. She's filled with fear, terror that she's lost me and always goes in search of me when, when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you understand if I shared with you what I shared in the chapel at the time of the announcement of my resignation. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago and I promised to care for Mural in sickness and in health. Tell death to us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. There's more. I love Mural. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of the continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. He continues on. He says, I have been startled by the response to the announcement of my resignation. Husbands and wives renewing marriage vows. Pastor telling this story to their people. It was a mystery to me until a distinguished oncologist who lives constantly with dying people told me. Almost all women stand by their men. Very few men stand by their women. That's acid. This covenantal faithfulness. This steadfast love. That's all in the word hesed. And that's the environment of our passage. And that's what David wants to show to Mephibosheth. Hesed, kindness. He wants to show that kind of love to Mephibosheth. And hesed is what he wants to show. And now catch this. Hesed is what motivates David to show this kindness. Hesed is what motivates him to show Hesed to Mephibosheth. And that is seen in two ways. First of all, first of all, David wants to show to Mephibosheth the same kind of kindness that had been shown to him by God. He had been shown Hesed. He had been shown kindness. And now he's going to show it. Notice verse 3 in your Bibles. Chapter 9, verse 3, the king said, Is there not yet someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? I've experienced the kindness of God, and I want to show the kindness. And last week, when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we saw, did we not, the kindness of God shown to David in giving him these great eternal promises And I won't have you turn there, but the passage is noted in your notes, Psalm 89, in speaking of those promises God made to David, uses the term hesed. That's these promises, that's this covenant, it's this loving kindness. And so God's hesed, God's loving kindness to David is what motivated David to be kind to Mephibosheth. I've received it. I've been a recipient of the kindness of God. I'm going to extend it to Mephibosheth. A second way Hesed motivated David 
was David was kind or hesed towards Mephibosheth because of his being hesed toward Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Notice verse 1. David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul then that I may show him kindness? Why? For Jonathan's sake. And that idea is repeated in verse 7. For Jonathan's sake. So David was going to be kind to Mephibosheth because of his commitments, his promises made to Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Again, because of time, I won't have us turn back to, but in your notes, and you can go back there later, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Here's 2 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Some 20 years separates the events. (laughs) But because of their loving kindness towards each other, this idea of hesed, Jonathan and David made promises to each other. David made promises to Jonathan that he would be kind to his descendants. Do you remember that? We looked at that that idea of friendship way back then. So David entered into a covenant with Jonathan, this idea of being hesed, and he made promises that because of their friendship, he would be faithful to Jonathan's descendants. That he would have this steadfast love for Jonathan, and not just for Jonathan, but to his descendants. And so it's because of that he was motivated because of his friendship with Jonathan years previous to keep that commitment, that love, and to show it to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Wow. I hope what you'll walk away here with this morning is this idea of hesed. Because it's the key term in our passage. As David shows it to Mephibosheth. And why? Because he had experienced it from God. Why? Because he had experienced it with Jonathan. And now he's going to demonstrate it. Wow. Chesed. A beautiful, beautiful term. A beautiful, beautiful concept. A relationship with God. Our relationship with our spouse and our marriage. All right, we're about half done. Because I, I said I want to talk about the two leading characters, right? First one is David, key characteristic, chesed. That's a high watermark in this passage. But we need to talk about Mephibosheth. This one David demonstrated kindness to, and the key word with Mephibosheth is lo debar. Would you say that with me? I had you say chesed. Now, this one is just kind of fun to say. Lo debar. Oh, you got to lower the voice, I think. Lo debar. Second Samuel 9, verse 3. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan who was crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Zebed said to the king, well, behold, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Emilio, in Lo-Debar. Mephibosheth lives in Lo-Debar. Debar means thing or word. Lo negates it. And so the name of the city is no thing or nowhere. No thing. Nowhere. GotQuestions.org tells us a little about Lo Debar. Debar normally means word or thing. 
The prefix lo is a negator, thus the term Lodabar would mean no word or no thing. The town's name is not complimentary. The name may or may not have been an apt description of the town. If it was an apt description, it may have been lacking good pasture. It may have been an insignificant nothing town. In English, we might say that it was in the middle of nowhere. Lodabar is first mentioned in connection with Mephibosheth, the only surviving son of Jonathan, son of King Saul. David wanted to show kindness to Jonathan's family, and he was told that Mephibosheth was living in Lodabar. The story is found in 2 Samuel 9. Mephibosheth leaves Nothingville, Lodabar, and moves into the king's residence in Jerusalem from Podunk to Palace. That a great statement from Podunk to Palace. I conclude in studying this passage that where Mephibosheth lives, Lodabar is representative of his life. He lives in the middle of nowhere. Nothingville. I believe that before David brought him from Podunk to the palace, that Mephibosheth's life was one of disappointment. One of desolation. Maybe even one of desperation. And, and that's made clear in other ways in our passage. Not just the fact that he was from low to bar. But, but notice, what is the first thing Ziba tells David about Mephibosheth? So, uh, this is Ziba says to the king. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of the king of God? And Ziba says to the king, what does he say? First thing, there's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both his feet. All right, before even given his name, how does he describe this young man? He's a cripple. He's a cripple. And then how does the passage end? Bringing the exclamation point. The very last statement in the whole passage. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now what? What does it say? He was lame in both feet. Our writer says it twice. He wants us to know of this, of Mephibosheth's being a cripple. And think with me, in that culture, at that time, in agrarian culture where there was shepherding, physical strength was an absolute necessity. Would it not have been? Physical strength in that culture at that time, it's conjecture, but Mephibosheth would probably have been left to begging. Except for the kindness of someone like Machair. He probably would have been left to begging for mere existence. And so Mephibosheth's life is one of disappointment, desolation, maybe even desperation. He lives in low Debar, the middle of nowhere. He's crippled in both his feet. And how does he describe himself to David? How does he describe himself? What is his own self-description? Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? And so that's his own self-description. I am like a dead dog. Dogs at that time oftentimes were despised as scavengers. All right? 
I'm a dead dog. So it's not just a dog, but he puts the superlative before it. I'm like a dead dog, a scavenger. I believe that Mephibosheth struggled greatly. And this is conjecture. Just understanding the tenor of our passage and all these descriptions that he struggled with anger and bitterness and disappointment and lived a life in a sense of desolation in Lodabar. Okay? Just think of the circumstances of his life. Put yourself in his place. We're told that his father was killed when he was five. Yep. His father was killed. His grandfather Saul was killed. Read through the passage. There's no mention of his mother. So there's no family. And because of his royal heritage, he, he had to fear for his life. Remember when he's before David, it speaks of, David says to him, you don't have to fear because usually a king in power would do away with all rivals. You would die. So he lives a life fearing that at any time there may be a knock at the door where he resides and it's soldiers of the king and they're there to extinguish him as a threat to the throne. So, so he lives with that fear. He's, he's crippled in both feet. And so he's living in Lodabar in dependence upon somebody else. Oh. Right? Disappointment. Disillusionment. I mean, he was in the line of the, of the throne of royalty. Wow. Big picture of our passage. Two characters, two characteristics. David, Hesed, kindness. Mephibosheth, low the bar, living in the middle of nowhere. And there's a real beauty to this whole story, is there not? And and that's why it's there, because David in his kindness lavishes blessings upon Mephibosheth from Lodabar. That's the beauty of this. Chuck Swindle says it's the greatest story of grace in the Old Testament. The grace demonstrated. Because what happens then, David brings Mephibosheth and he says, you get your land back. You see, he probably feared to go to the land of his forefathers because of what might befall him. But you're going to get the land of King Saul, your grandfather, back. And, and in fact, we're going to put Zeba. You can't work the land, but Zeba will work the land for you with his sons and his servants. And then the cherry on top of it all is he says to Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table as one of my sons. From podunk to castle to palace, right? That's what we need to see in this story. And, and uh, in, in the passage I read earlier, Mephibosheth leaves nothingville, Lodabar, and moves into the king's residence in Jerusalem from podunk to palace. Wow. Wow. Isn't it a beautiful story? As we work with the undercurrents, as we work with the themes and, and bring it all together. The two leading characters, what describes their life and and how it all comes together. What a happy ending, isn't it? It really is. 
So we've got to ask the question. We always want to ask this question. How do I apply this to my life? How do I apply this to my life? And my first application would be this. I hope we can see ourselves in Mephibosheth. I hope we can see ourselves in Mephibosheth and our salvation. Our condition before Christ. We were from low to bar. Right? Podunk. A place of desolation. We were cripples. We were dead dogs. Dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, because of Christ, in Christ, for Christ, did what? He showed kindness to us. It's a picture of our lives and how God has treated us. And that's exactly what we read in our New Testaments. Ephesians 2 gives us this, 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 this idea, moves us all forward. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so we were dead before Christ, enslaved, right? Destined to wrath. Did you know how verse 4 begins? You better be careful because I may jump right out of, out of my... I don't want to jump out of it. We could get all excited with this. How does verse 4 go? But God... But God reached into our lives, people from low to bar, people who are cripples, people who are dead in our sin. But God. And notice how he's described being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, the motivation on the part of God, the heart of God, even the term kindness is used here. As we find in 2 Samuel 9, he's rich in mercy, he's great in love, he's gracious, he's kind towards us in Christ. Oh, but God, that's you and me. Ever feel sorry for yourself? In a sense, Les was talking about that in Sunday school, losing our passion, we can feel sorry for ourselves. I know it's a dumb question because we can tend to feel sorry for ourselves. And as I said, I think Mephibosheth did. I think he did. Just read through the passage. Put yourself in his circumstances and think how you would be responding to all of that. Oh, when I was a kid, I learned part of a song. It's entitled, Nobody Likes Me. You remember that? Maybe if you're younger, this is probably an older song. and It's kind of like what you would sing when you're feeling sorry for yourself. I didn't know the first and second stanza. I just kind of knew the chorus. But nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to the garden to eat worms. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. 
Big, fat, juicy ones, eeny, wincy, squincy ones. See how they wiggle and squirm. And then the verses, they're great. I won't give you all of them, but this is verse 1. Down goes the first one. Down goes the second one. Oh, how they wiggle and squirm. Up comes the first one. Up comes the second one. Oh, how they wiggle and squirm. Yeah. Have you ever sung that song? Maybe a different version. Feeling sorry for ourselves. But I'm here to shout this morning that our understanding of God's grace and mercy and kindness changes all of that. It changes all of that. Because it takes us from podunk to palace. We're a child of the king. Oh, to see ourselves in Mephibosheth, what our condition was before Christ. And God in His kindness and His love and His grace and His mercy reached out and brought us into a relationship with Himself through Jesus Christ. It's a game changer. Amen? Amen? I'm going to get excited. I'm just warming up. Oh, to see ourselves in Mephibosheth and the transformation that took place in His life. And in fact, the truth is that most of you don't grasp it. You may sit there, nod your head, smile a little bit. But in Ephesians 3, Paul goes on to pray that, hey, I pray that you really start to grasp this stuff. You start to grasp the love that God has for you in Christ. How wide, long, and deep, and high it is. We're grappling with it. But it's a game changer. Yep. Second application is this. I hope we can see ourselves in David. We've been shown kindness, chesed. And so we should show kindness our chesed. We should be people of steadfast love. We should be people who make promises and keep them. We should be just like our God. Just like David. Uh, Lucy and Peanuts, uh, this, this is a common theme in Peanuts. Remember, if, especially if you're older and uh, she wants to hold the football so he'll kick it and she always pulls it away. Remember that? I mean, this theme is repeated and repeated and repeated. She's wanting, she says, no, absolutely not. You must think I'm crazy. You say you'll hold the ball, but you won't. You'll pull it away and I'll break my neck. Why, Charlie Brown, how you talk? I would think I wouldn't think of such a thing. I'm a changed person. Look, isn't this the face that you can trust? All right, you hold the ball, and I'll come running up and kick it. There she pulls it. She did it again. Womp. I admire you, Charlie Brown. You have such faith in human nature. <laughs> yep. Lucy here, a good example of a bad example. The kind of people we really don't want in our lives. (laughs) Who make promises and break them. Who just delight in being unkind to us. We want to be people. She's a good example of a bad example. We want to be the flip side. We want to be people who are faithful. Right? Who who make promises and keep them. We we want to be a church that's... the, the environment is one of hesed, one of kindness. 
And I see that. We're in process. We haven't arrived yet. But we're in process of demonstrating more and more as we grow as a church the character of who our God is. And I'm going to conjecture the Spirit of God who indwells you now as a child of God may very well be saying, yes, that's what I want for you. To be a person who's hesed, who's a person of loving kindness, a person who, in the context of the church body, not just here, but certainly here, makes promises and keeps them. Demonstrates kindness. Maybe even the, the, the homework this week or the assignment is uh, in your day planner, planner, go ahead and put down maybe, who can I show kindness to this week? That really would be a good thing. I don't put it in my day planner, but that would be a very good thing for us to do, wouldn't it? In our day planner, maybe on Monday, kindness shown. So we have that attitude through the week. We just don't walk out of here and forget this, but we have the attitude through the week or through the month. Who am I going to show kindness to this week? Because you know what? Opportunities are everywhere, aren't they? If the opportunities are everywhere to be this kind of person... We've received Hesed. We should be channels of Hesed. Amen? Father, we give you praise. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you for 2 Samuel 9. We thank you for David, who as he's experienced your Hesed, your loving kindness, wants to demonstrate it. We want to be the same kind of people. Father, we thank you that You're faithful to your promises. Father, that you will sit, a descendant of David, on the throne forever. And we're going to be under his rule. We want faithful people. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be kind. Help us to take this into the week. And maybe just small ways. They don't have to be big, huge ways, but just small ways of demonstrating to you we want to be like you, that we're people of faith. Continue to work in our lives, Father. We thank you that you're faithful. You've begun a good work and you're going to continue it. We praise you for your faithfulness, your kindness. Stir our minds and our hearts with such great thoughts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.